Welcome to Pulp. You've never seen an act like this, folks. I've seen some doozies in my time, but this right here is the cat's pajamas. The real McKay. The barista's tattoo. The... All right, all right, you get the picture. We have everything here at Pulp. Space pirates, cowboys, dinosaurs, cowboy riding dinosaurs, dinosaur riding cowboys, steampunk, treasure hunters, the weird and macabre, the strange and mysterious. And folks, I ain't gonna kid you none, some of it is outright camp. And you'll love every minute of it. So what is the show, you might ask? How does it work? Well, let me tell you. Imagine, if you will, a podcast which features both regular series in episodic form while contemporaneous with other series, which, in multiplicity, include anthology stories. And in this podcast, the regular ongoing series are... (coughs) Alright, so here's the down and dirty. Your serial shows will be the following. Space Pirate O'Malley, a very loose retelling of Granny O'Malley, the legendary medieval Irish pirate. She'll make her debut this season, but the good stuff of her story will come out later in season two. If you want more of her stuff now, subscribe on Patreon and get full access. Number two is Vasquez and Walker. You like Indiana Jones? I love Indiana Jones. I love Uncharted. I love Tomb Raider. I love National Treasure. I love Temple Run. These two folks are our Indiana Jones and Indiana Jane, and they'll have their first major arc rounding out season one finale. Remember, folks, in the trailer we said something about Antarctic mutant yetis? And don't you worry none, just like Dr. Jones, they still punch Nazis. Number three is Ages of Steam and Power. This one is steampunk. It's got a lot of different stuff. Light horror, adventure, revenge, mysteries, epic geopolitical upheaval, revenge, romance, gangsters, heists, revenge, explorers, tales of survival, revenge... Class warfare through the democratization of technology. You know, steampunk. Next, we've got of prophets and warlords. I love me some high fantasy, but not when it's a damn ripoff of Lord of the Rings. So that's what this is. Lots of religious imagery in this one. Next up are the lists of anthology series. Tales of mystery and macabre. No, I will not apologize. I like Poe. I like cosmic horror. I like some creepy ass shit. So I'm going to make some creepy ass stories and that's it. Standard weird goth stuff. Next, we have the Space and Future Things. This one is good old sci-fi. The title doesn't mean anything, we just thought it sounded cool. Next is Tales of the Apocalypse. This one features tales from the apocalypse. Pretty straightforward, it's not the same apocalypse every time. There's lots of different ways to die. Next is Hard Boiled. Have you ever wondered what the old hard-boiled writers would do in a world we live in today? Wonder no more. Instead of going to the past, we're bringing Hard Boiled to the future. Last but not least, we have adventure tales. Tales of adventure of every kind. Episode 2, which is live today, will feature an adventure from Adventure Tales. But let's save that for later. For now, we have three shorts. Not the kind you wear. Not the kind you eat. The kinds of stories that are short enough to be fun, but long enough to have meaning. Our first, Night Stalkers, will be from our sci-fi series, The Space and Future Things. Our second... Auction in Gehenna will be our first entry from Tales of Mystery and Macabre. And our final entry from today will be another Tale of Mystery and Macabre. One more thing before we get started, folks. We have our very own Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes and on the website. Or you can just put in Pulp Podcast Patreon into your Google machine and that should do the trick. 
Without any further ado, I present our first story. Let the Wonderment unfold! Night Stalkers The year is 1136 in the Common Era. The place? Near Bedford in the Norman Kingdom of England. Sir Reginald of Winchester, an honorable knight of the highest order, has been summoned to adjudicate a matter on the king's behalf in the city of York. He stopped at a crossroads, unsure of where to go. It was late at night, and he could not read the signs. He would not have been so foolish as to remove himself from his horse and make himself easy prey for bandits, so instead he squinted at the sign, hoping to induce clarity. Before he could fully read the sign, it was illuminated by a great light. He looked above him at the source of this omnipresent and pure light. A great dark obelisk the size of a castle had appeared out of the sky. It was curved like a spoon and remained upright. It floated like a ship on calm seas, but rotated slowly and steadily like a clock. Suddenly, a beam of energy emanated from the obelisk, and Sir Reginald of Winchester was no longer on this earth. His horse remained, but he was gone. So too, in a moment's time, was the obelisk. In the obelisk, traveling at ungodly speeds through space, there was an observation room. In the center of it was an upright restraining bed where Sir Reginald lay fully fastened and gazing about the sterile room filled with cold light. It had not escaped him that his trousers had been removed. In the next room, two creatures with slender gray bodies, large heads and large eyes, sat at a console with a myriad of buttons and switches. They were surrounded by mountains of paperwork that at one time were stacked in an orderly fashion, but had fallen into chaos a long time ago. They wore large coveralls with the words Abduction Services and Management written in the language of some far-off galaxy. One figure, significantly taller than the other, propped their head up with their arm on the console and spoke to the other who, rather than keeping their attention to the matter at hand, was fully engrossed in a comic titled The Princess of Earth. The tall one let out a flustered sigh and said to the other, Can you believe they're making us go back to the MRD-81 forms again? I know, the short one replied. It's like they finally figured out the new forms don't actually make things go faster because we still have to put in the same information. They turned a page, still engrossed in their conic. Yeah, but I bet they still want us to increase the abduction rate, the taller one said fiddling with the buttons. A voice emerged from the other room. Villain, return to me my trousers or meet me in glorious combat. What the hell happened to this guy's pants? The short one said. The tall one responded first with a flurry of activity, turning this dial, flipping that switch. I don't know, we've been having trouble with the abduction beam lately, the tall one replied. And it's not like they're going to spend the bucks on maintenance, either. You'll need to fill out a missing pants form, the short one said, still not bothering to look up from their comic. 
You gotta be freaking kidding me. It's already in the main assessment, the tall one exclaimed. Oh, no, nah, we went back to the DDH-725 forms. The short creature turned their comic to the side to get a better view of the full-page illustration. The voice from the other room emerged again. Villain, hast thou heard my challenge? You believe this guy? The tall one looked over to their co-worker. Way to drag out an abduction. Looks like we'll need a belligerence form, the short one said, pointing to a stack of paperwork. The tall one pressed the intercom button and spoke. Listen, Reggie, I'm gonna need you to dial it back a bit. You're killing me with the paperwork, man. Sir Reginald responded. Unhand me, agents of Lucifer! <sighs> I really want to use the shock stick, but I really don't want to fill out the paperwork. The tall one leaned over to the short one as they spoke. Uh, I won't tell if you won't, the short one replied. All right, here it goes. A loud buzzing sound could be heard from the other room for a long second. The two creatures eagerly awaited an immediate response. There was none. Reggie, buddy, you okay? The tall one said over the intercom. Jesus, Greg, you killed him. Do you have any idea how long the form is for that? The short one finally put down the comic. What matter of sorcery? Whew, that was a close one. Have you seen those accidental death forms? Like, I fill out one of those and you'll have to fill out one for me. Because I'll die of old age, know what I mean? The tall one elbowed the short one. The booming voice from before returned. Cards! Using sorcery, forsooth, you cannot meet me in combat with honor. Man, I can't with this guy. Do you want to put him back and pick up, I don't know, peasant or something? They're usually kind of grateful and less... Uppity? The short one finished the other sentence. Yeah, the tall one said. Yeah, go ahead, the short one replied and turned the page. Should we wipe him? Oh, last few days for sure, the short one said. Man, I need a vacation. The tall one said as he punched in the, the coordinates. In a moment, the obelisk had returned to Earth, as had Sir Reginald. How about that, huh? I tell you what, folks, if those aliens would join a union, they probably wouldn't be so burned out. Next up, we have a real doozy. Our first entry from Tales of Mystery and Macabre. Pay close attention to this one. Auction in Gehenna. A cavalcade of figures shuffled into a small building with the most uncomfortable chairs, arranged in rows before a podium. The walls were made of rotting wood, crawling with termites. The wood itself was mostly covered in peeling wallpaper with ornate patterns of thorny bushes, and a hint of red painted on the tips of each thorn. The auction hall began to fill with the most nauseating and grotesque figures. The auctioneer, a man in an exceptional waistcoat with bulbous growths on his neck and hands, let out an impatient sigh and addressed the crowd. 
Gather round, some of us have more important things to do today. Two figures in the back met with icy stares. One was an unusually tall man, so tall he could barely fit through any of the doorways. He was as slender as he was tall. It looked to be that his skin would be hard-pressed to cover all of his ribs. Although as sickly as he looked, he carried himself as a man of wealth and stature. He certainly had the stature, if not the gravitas. His complexion was already pale, but he wore a powder on his face to make himself look more... solid white rather than translucent, which he would be if his skin were any more pallid. He wore a tall top hat with a hole in the corner that looked as if a rat had chewed through it. He wore a monocle that maintained a musty, spiderweb-like opacity. His mustache was impeccably shaped, but it was so excessively oiled, you might worry that if you got too close, the grease would get in your lungs. Although, if you were close enough, you would probably be more occupied with the smell of rotten, pickled fish he held on a small plate. The other figure was a woman wearing a deep red dress and a corset wrapped in a cage from her waist to her bodice. The bars were not particularly ornate or expertly wrought in a pleasing pattern, rather they were more akin to prison bars which looked more uncomfortably simple next to her ornate dress. She carried with her a small birdcage, but instead of a bird, it contained a rather sickly creature. It had no fur, scales, or any other outer layer that would make it pleasant to behold. It was covered in a jaundiced skin, wrapped like a relaxed tent over tendons that seemed as if they would snap at any moment. It stood on its legs and grasped the bars with its claws. No head rested on its shoulders. Instead, a mound, and at the top of it was an opening with tiny dagger-like teeth, which somehow made the screeching noises emanating from the mouth hole even more piercing. The man in the hat and the woman with the creature exchanged pleasantries. Have you become larger, or has your dress become smaller? The man said as he pinched a fillet of soft and moldy fish, lifting it to his mouth. I personally take no umbrage with people who eat fish, but most people I know say that only men who have no imagination eat it, the woman said in a casually dismissive tone. What a horrid thing for you to say, the man replied. Oh, I would never, the woman said indignantly. It's only my friends that do, she continued. Besides, only men wanting in success would comment on a woman's size. I never said that, he replied confidently. You misheard me. The auctioneer interrupted the spat between the two and again addressed the crown with an exhausted lean on the podium and an arrogant smirk. I doubt this will take much time, as most of you are more than unusually lacking in skill or understanding. He looked around the room, making eye contact with those he deemed inferior. 
The item today is one barrel of oil, one barrel, and you all know what this means. He paused and looked around again like a tired, designated driver, keeping peace between all their drunk friends. I shouldn't have to remind you that murder is not allowed in this tent, and neither is sabotage. Please take your mindless squabbles elsewhere. It must be so difficult having him speak to you like that, the woman leaned over to the man and whispered in his ear. How unusually perceptive for a woman, the man replied and raised his paddle. Twenty thousand to the man in the hat, the auctioneer roared off to a start. Do I hear thirty thousand, anyone? He began to lean again on the podium as if he had been performing all day. I had no idea you were hurting that badly, the woman cooed. You poor thing, unable to afford proper sport. She turned from her feigned compassion and raised her paddle. One hundred thousand, she said as calm as she was announcing the time. Two hundred and fifty, the man in the hat said as he raised his paddle. If sporting is what you want, I would be happy to oblige. Two hundred and fifty thousand, the auctioneer boomed. I'm sure there is someone here that can oblige, the woman replied and raised her paddle. But I doubt it's you. Two fifty-five, the auctioneer echoed. What's the matter? Can't keep up, the man in the hat said as he raised his paddle and held up two fingers. Two hundred and fifty-seven thousand, the auctioneer bellowed. Well, I guess I can't, the woman said, gathering her things and trying to hush her screeching pet. One drum of oil, two hundred and fifty-seven thousand, going once, going twice, and sold to the thin man in the top hat for two hundred and fifty-seven thousand human souls to be paid by orchestration of geopolitical conflict confirmed by the office of Gehenna Bursars. As usual, a small bustle ensued, as those who had lost interest and were waiting for the transition began to move, while others stayed, making for a series of figures standing and moving past the seated ones. A cacophony of frustrated sighs and backhanded apologies and absolutions filled the room. The thin man turned to the woman to gloat, but she spoke first. Congratulations, the woman said. Although I would be surprised if you find it useful. Who knows? Maybe it's full of sand. What did you do? The thin man said. His gracious and backhanded smile had disappeared. Oh, how would I know? She replied, taking a piece of his fish from his plate and feeding it to her pet who was hanging on the ceiling of its cage and reaching through it as far as it could. God, woman, don't you know there are rules? The man said aghast. Rules? She chuckled. Don't you know where you are? She lifted her hand to his forehead to mockingly check for a fever. I don't care where we are, we still have rules. He stepped back, dodging her condescending hand. 
They were interrupted by the auctioneer's booming voice. Next item, Dr. James Dobson's mailing list. We will start the bidding at 100 human souls. Do I hear 100? I'll leave you alone with your toy so you can do whatever it is men do with it. The woman said as she sauntered off. The shrieks of her pet slowly dimmed until the only sounds the man in the top hat could hear was the low din of the auction hall and the constant jabber of the auctioneer bargaining for more souls. And now for our finale, a soul that wanders where it ought not, weaving in and out of not only space and time, but consciousness. One day, a dead soul wandering aimlessly in the place where dead souls are held, passed by the gatekeeper to the land of the living. Now, usually, the gatekeeper would just stand there awkwardly. Sometimes they would say, you know you can't leave, buddy. The dead soul would just stand there and stare blankly at the outside. Sometimes the gatekeeper would become frustrated and start talking to themselves. Sometimes they would try and get a conversation out of the dead soul, which, if you have ever attempted that impossible task, you would know that anyone who tried to do so would be truly desperate, because, really... Standing at the gate, blankly wondering what was happening on the other side, was all the dead soul was capable of. They are a dead soul, after all. But on this day, the gatekeeper had something they needed to do. It could have been meeting a lover. It could have been a movement of their insides. It could have been that they just couldn't stand being around dead souls for another day. At any rate, they left muttering something under their breath quite a while ago, with the gate unattended. The dead soul approached apprehensively. I would be lying if I told you that the dead soul had any thought. The truth is, a dead soul has very few thoughts. They almost always live in a constant stupor. Like when you have a word on the tip of your tongue and you just can't remember it. So, the dead soul reached out. Out of some hazy combination of whatever curiosity they were capable of, and just aimless movement. And they touched the door. This was the closest they had ever come to the door, but when they touched it, it moved. It must have been unlocked, but the dead soul, not knowing what else to do with the door that moves, just walked through it as if there was no other choice. If you asked the dead soul what happened, they wouldn't have been able to tell you. They just wandered around. The first thing that they would be able to tell you is that they noticed a crunch beneath their feet. They looked down slowly, staring at their feet, wrapped in black, tattered cloth. Then they slowly lifted one foot. Nothing was underneath. Just regular old concrete bleached by the sun that the dead soul was still adjusting to. Then they lifted the other foot. This time there was a patchwork of small pieces like a kaleidoscope of auburn fragments, some as tiny as an ant, 
some as large as a fingernail. The dead soul then continued on their way, one foot in front of the other, as if they had nothing else to do. I mean, they didn't, but they had no purpose, still just aimlessly wandering about until it happened again, the crunching sound beneath their feet. This time, when they looked down, there was a half a leaf sticking out from under their shoe. They stood there, quietly staring at the leaf, until they saw another stiff, auburn-colored leaf nearby. They reached out their foot and slowly let their heel down, and then rolled their foot over the leaf to make the sound of the slow crunch. They were wholly surprised by what was happening to them. It was like a little spark of electricity passed through their body for a moment. Like the first sip of coffee in the morning that makes you feel alive. Like a splash of cool water on your face, or that moment when a special person walks into the room and your breath leaves you for a moment. For a second, for a brief instant, an image, no, more like a hallucination. It was like the soul, for a moment, was transported to another time and place. They were a child again, walking with their sister, playfully trying to run ahead of each other to pounce on the crunchy leaf before the other could get it, while their father calls them asking that they remain within eyesight. The two sisters were filled with obsession, chasing leaves to step on, pouncing on one after another until there were no more, and they continued to walk hand in hand. Then the hallucination faded, giving way to people walking past as if they could not see the soul. Indeed, they could not. The dead soul walked on with their back lifted and stretched to the sky, each step bouncing as if gravity was at their command. This merry wonder did not last. As they were walking, they faded back into a clouded stupor. Their back hunched again. Their steps slowed and their feet began to drag. Their thoughts became tangled again. Sometimes they would just fade away. They would halt, stand for a moment, and try to remember what they were thinking about. And then begin to walk forward again in their mechanical, habitual manner. They would continue on like this until they saw something. Perhaps one moment it was a child playing with their guardian. Perhaps it would be folks gathering on the street corner, a song blaring from a speaker nearby. At this, the dead soul would brighten again. Their thoughts would be clear again. They could remember where they were going. The electricity returned to their limbs. Then, as quickly as the electrifying sensation overcame them, it would leave. Sometimes it would be a sign of someone being cursed at, a passerby being told about another person and how annoying they were, and sometimes it was for no reason at all. Then, suddenly, a gust of wind blew a barrage of trash at the dead soul. It moved as fast as it could, which was not fast at all, to remove the trash, but one piece stuck to their shoulder piece of plastic covered in bubbles. The dead soul held this piece of trash for a moment. One part of it stuck to their shoulder. The soul pulled at it, but it seemed to be fastened somehow. As they grabbed the trash harder to pull it away, one of the bubbles popped and the electrifying sensation returned. The dead soul popped another bubble, and the electrifying feeling burst through them. The hallucinations returned as well. 
Masol was taken back to Christmas Day. After all the packages had been opened, the wrapping was strewn about the floor. Sister had found some bubble wrap and started to pop it one by one. The two of them popped the bubbles together until they had become so impatient that they rolled up the sheets, twisting the middles to pop as many bubbles as they could. The dead soul walked along as they popped the bubbles, their steps becoming faster, their limbs becoming lighter. For one moment, they may have even smiled. After every bubble had been popped, the dead soul sat down on a patch of grass, feeling their breath as they had not felt it for a long time. They fell back, laid down, facing the sky, looking at the clouds. This was different than the electrifying feeling. This was as if all their body had just been awakened from a deep sleep, and yet enjoyed the awakening of a cold shower at the same time. If you asked them, they would never in a hundred years be able to tell you how long they lay there, watching the clouds roll by, each one as fascinating as the next. After who knows how long, the soul rose and walked, this time with limbs as light as a feather, their steps as easy as breathing, until they reached the door of dead souls. They passed the gatekeeper, who had returned but was in a deep sleep and was none the wiser of the dead soul's absence, and they then rejoined the other dead souls. Well, that's it for this one, folks. Turn into the next episode for more goodies. Speaking of goodies, go on over to our Patreon page, become a patron, and get all the goodies your heart desires with a subscription. Or just buy it outright. This show took a lot of moxie and elbow grease, and that stuff don't come cheap. So go on over and become a Patreon today. See you on the next one. Good night, and good luck.